Dinah Lance is a fighter, and her one-woman war is against the czars of crime, the frightened men who dread the blonde bombshell, otherwise known as Black Canary. first episode of Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast. If you're listening to this, you're probably familiar with my fan blog of the same name, wherein I wrote about the DC Comics character Black Canary, and reviewed her appearances in comics throughout the decades since her debut in 1947. The Flowers and Fishnets blog has languished over the last couple of months, as I became more and more embittered toward the current output of DC Comics. In the meantime, I started podcasting about my love of Star Wars, which you can hear on the Dead Bothan Spies podcast. But recently, DC announced that they were going to release a Black Canary solo series starting in June. For however long the book lasts, assuming that it's not planned as a mini, this will mark only the second ongoing series Black Canary has had in the nearly 70 years since she was created. I didn't want to be excited about the prospect of a new Black Canary book, because I simply don't trust the people steering DC's ship right now. But I couldn't help myself. I want this book to succeed. I'm going to buy it when it comes out, and I felt obligated to blog about it. That meant dusting off flowers and fishnets and covering the blonde bombshell's older appearances as well. It occurred to me that I could infuse new life into my Black Canary fandom by evolving the blog into a podcast, and what you're listening to right now is the result. My goal is to release this show once a week with each episode reviewing an issue from the Canary's first ongoing series in 1993, as well as her Golden Age appearances in Flash and All-Star Comics. That should bring me to the summer when the new book hits shelves, and I'll reevaluate the format of the show then. The subject of this first episode, though, had to be the origin story, or rather, two origin stories, hers and mine. Later in this episode, I'll be covering the first printed origin story of Black Canary, but before that, I should tell you how and why I created Flowers and Fishnets. I got my first comic books in the late 1980s, and became a regular reader and collector in the early 90s when I discovered not one, not two, but three different stores that sold comic books all within bike riding distance from my house in northern Illinois. Even though G.I. Joe was my gateway drug, it was the caped and costumed superheroes that made me an addict. Before I ever read a comic book, I learned about superheroes from reruns of the Super Friends TV show and the Super Powers toy line. The legendary DC heroes have been in my life for as long as I can remember. And when Batman smashed into theaters in 1989... You couldn't throw a rock in any direction without hitting someone wearing a Batman or Joker t-shirt. Every shopping mall in America put up a Warner Brothers store to sell Batman merchandise. I think hardware stores were obliged to sell copies of The Dark Knight Returns. At one of those aforementioned Warner Brothers stores, I got a t-shirt that, to this day, is one of my favorite pieces of memorabilia. Or it would be, at least, if I hadn't worn the shirt to its figurative death. The shirt depicted Superman, Batman, Robin, Wonder Woman, and The Flash on the front, and Aquaman, Hawkman, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, and Plastic Man on the back. 
Even though they were only a few inches tall on the shirt, these characters were larger than life to me. Like the race memory of ancient gods of myth, the superheroes existed before time, but were always part of time, never really changing, always waging their never-ending war on evil. Batman and Detective Comics starring Batman were the first superhero comics I started collecting. But as Image Comics and my teen years waltzed into the 90s hand-in-hand, the godlike heroes of DC were supplanted by angst-ridden, gun-toting anti-heroes from Marvel and other publishers. I was a Marvel zombie for 20 years. During that time, I tried to revisit my first loves, but whenever I picked up a DC book, the heroes didn't look like they did on my old t-shirt. Their costumes were blacker, more metallic, their hair was longer, grungier. These were aesthetic qualities I loved from Marvel and Image, but with DC they felt inauthentic, like pandering to my generation. Ironically, it was the era of Dan DiDio, an era that most diehard fans credit as the latest beginning of the most recent end, that helped me connect with DC Comics. Someday I'll go into greater detail, but suffice to say I dove headfirst into DC around 2008. In addition to reading the comics, I sought information on the characters from the most reliable place I knew, the internet. This is how I discovered fan blogs. I won't name drop all of them, but among those I followed regularly were the Aquaman Shrine, Being Carter Hall, which is a Hawkman fan site, Firestorm fan, The Speed Force, a Flash blog, Comic Box Commentary, a Supergirl fan site, as well as the numerous blogs managed by Diablo Frank, covering Martian Manhunter, Wonder Woman, The Atom, the Justice League Detroit, and more. I followed those blogs for years, leaving comments, getting to know the guys who started them, and they inspired me to create one. The problem was, all of my favorite DC heroes were taken, or so I thought. I actually made a list of all of the heroes from the Justice League satellite era and the Justice Society of America. I briefly considered devoting the blog to the entire JSA, but I knew that was too expansive for me to cover substantively without losing my mind. But I also didn't have enough material with Wildcat to only blog about him. There was one character who fell on both of those lists, the JLA and JSA, who wasn't already being covered on one of the websites I frequented, and that was Black Canary. I was hesitant at first because A, I didn't know much about the character at the time, and B, I really didn't take the character seriously. Her gimmick was fishnet stockings, and to me, that made her a cheesecake character. At this stage of my life, I had no use for cheesecake characters, but seeing no better alternative, I mean, no way in hell was I going to spend every day writing about Red Tornado. I invested some time and money researching the character. I bought the hardcover archives collection of her Golden Age stories and the complete set of Gail Simone's run on Birds of Prey and I freaking fell in love with Black Canary. If you don't know anything about her, writer Robert Kaniger and artist Carmine Infantino created Black Canary in 1947 for Flash Comics number 86. She debuted as a masked femme fatale that kind of skirted the law, but pretty quickly she evolved into a civic-minded crime fighter. The Canary's civilian identity was Dinah Drake, the owner of a flower shop, which is where half of the title of this podcast comes from. She stood out from other heroines of the Golden Age with her short jacket and fishnet stockings, the second half of the show's title. Before long, Black Canary joined the Justice Society of America. A couple decades later, she joined the Justice League of America on a parallel Earth as the result of comic book science. Even later, the JLA version of the Canary was retconned to be Dinah Laurel Lance, the daughter of the JSA Canary. 
If that sounds confusing, it got even more so in 1983, but I'll get into that some other day. Not that it matters now, because DC changed it yet again in 2011 when they rebooted most of their characters, and Black Canary's origin was drastically altered. Regardless of the character's history, a few things have remained consistent since the 40s. The first is her power set. Black Canary is primarily a hand-to-hand combatant. She has mastered multiple martial arts disciplines and unarmed combat forms. It's not as spectacular as a magic ring or super speed, but making the top 10 greatest fighters on Earth in the DC Universe is nothing to scoff at. And at various times throughout the decades, Black Canary has had an additional power, a legitimate superpower that takes the form of a sonic scream called her Canary Cry. This scream, when properly focused, is powerful enough to punch a hole through a wall. Her look, too, has undergone slight tweaks over the years, but is mostly held to a handful of consistent elements. Black Canary's hair is blonde, even if that's not Dinah's natural color. She wears fishnet stockings or blue leggings with a fishnet pattern over them. And she has a jacket and shirt combination, usually black or blue, with one of them being leather. Now, if it sounds like I'm describing a street-walking prostitute, I cannot dispute that. Her costume is intentionally sexualized, because she was created as a seductress before she was a superhero. Her look also plants her squarely on the ground. Black Canary doesn't soar over the skies of Star City. She doesn't wear a cape. She's an urban vigilante, like Batman, without the money and the toys. She doesn't strike from the shadows, using fear to disarm her prey. Instead, Dinah broadcasts her beauty. She flaunts her cleavage and her legs, so when the bad guys see her, they don't recognize the threat she poses until she's already snapped their wrists and judo flipped them into a dumpster. The more I read about her, the more I liked her. Is she an A-list hero? Not a chance. But she is one of the most highly valued and visible supporting characters in DC's history. Black Canary has, in one form or another, been part of multiple incarnations of the Justice League, the Justice Society, and Birds of Prey. She has been a partner to Green Arrow, both in crime fighting and in love, and a comrade in arms to Green Lantern, Batman, Batgirl slash Oracle, and others. She's had a maternal relationship with Roy Harper and the kids on the Young Justice cartoon. The reason she's such a strong supporting character is that she's so loving and compassionate by nature. Other characters like her and trust her, even though her taste in men could be better. And did I mention she rides a motorcycle? That alone might have sealed the deal. My wife rides, too. It's a turn-on for me. All this wonderful characterization came to me in time as I read more about her. Admittedly, when I started Flowers and Fishnets, Black Canary wasn't among my 20 favorite DC heroes. She was a means to an end. Now, she's in my top three, and I'm proud to podcast about her adventures in comics and television. I'm going to take a short break, and when I come back, the origin of Black Canary. You see, man, man, 
Black Canary's origin was first told in the 10th issue of DC Special Series, which hit newsstands on January 30th, 1978, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. While technically numbered, DC Special Series was more a loose collection of one-shots and reprints, so the cover to issue 10 doesn't say special anywhere on it. Instead, the title appears to be Secret Origins of Superheroes. The cover, by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, Wow, it's the first time I've ever actually said that out loud. It just rolls right off the tongue. Anyway, the cover features a trio of DC heroes with captions boasting, Revealed at last, the untold mysteries of Dr. Fate, the strange genesis of Light Ray, and the training of Black Canary. The untold origin of Black Canary is chronicled in The Canary is a Bird of Prey. It was written by Jerry Conway, penciled by Mike Vosberg, inked by Terry Austin, lettered by Shelley Lefferman, colored by Mario Sen, and edited by E. Nelson Bridwell. The story opens in present time with a mobster named Rico climbing out of his window in a desperate attempt to escape capture by Green Arrow. In the alley, however, Rico is confronted by Black Canary, who disarms him and Judo flips him into a pile of trash. Green Arrow catches up to them, and without much of a natural segue, pointedly asks his girlfriend if she ever regrets not living what most people consider a normal woman's life. It's obvious to the reader what Canary's answer is, since she barely understands the context of the question. But for Ollie's sake, and ours, she gives the matter some consideration. To understand why Dinah dresses up and fights crime on a nightly basis, we need to understand the road she took to get here. The story flashes back to Dinah's past, when she was a girl, roughly ten years old. We're in the Gotham city of Earth-2, and for ease of understanding, Earth-2 is a parallel universe almost identical to our own, except stories set in Earth-2 are perpetually set in the era immediately surrounding World War II. I think that's pretty easy to grasp, but the editors at DC circa 1985 didn't think so. Anyway... Young Dinah is at home with her father, Lieutenant Richard Drake of the Gotham Police Department. Richard's father-daughter time is spent coaching Dinah on boxing, gymnastics, and physical conditioning. He's turning her into a fighter, or at the very least, a woman who can defend herself. But he panics when it looks like Dinah injures herself working out. As Richard comforts Dinah, calling her his little bird, he glances across the room to a photo of his recently deceased wife. Now... It's clear that the lack of a maternal influence had a profound effect on Dinah Drake. Richard simply didn't know how to raise a daughter in the traditional mold, so he brought her up more like a son that he could relate to. And Dinah doesn't resent or reject this kind of parental approach. Maybe it's because her father is all she has now, too, but she desperately wants his love and approval, so she dives right into the physical training he puts her through. When she gets hurt and Richard realizes that he's pushed her too hard, it's Dinah that refuses to back down. And so, over the years, she continues to hone her body into a lean fighting machine, while sharpening her mind and spirit by studying law and reading stories about vigilantes. Richard brought Dinah on ride-alongs so she could see police work in action, and she eventually graduated with a degree in criminal psychology. Dinah was becoming a cop just like Dad, That's the trajectory of her life. But, of course, a woman detective didn't sit well with some people, namely the other police in Gotham who thought Richard Drake was crazy for raising his daughter for a man's job. One night, 
Dinah, now a woman, a college graduate, still determined to prove herself qualified to fight crime, meets her father's partner, Larry Lance. Larry comes across as chauvinistic and piggish, and from this first meeting, you'd never guess that Dinah and Larry would end up married. You know, unless you've seen any romantic comedy ever. Richard Drake and Larry Lance go to raid a gambling den that is supposed to have minimal security, but when they kick in the door, they're met by mob enforcers with heavy weapons. Richard and Larry are trapped, and their deaths are all but assured, except Dinah didn't sit on the sidelines like she was told. She sneaks into the gambling den and surprises the gunman, jumping them from behind. A karate chop to one guy's neck and a kick to another's face is all it takes to secure the room and bust the mobsters. Larry Lance is duly impressed by what he sees in Dinah, not just in her fighting spirit and ability, but in her brains and beauty. For reasons unexplained, Dinah begins to fall for Larry, too. One night after a date, Larry drives her home and asks her the same question that Green Arrow asked at the beginning of the story. Why does Dinah want to do a man's job? Dinah says, You still don't understand, do you? Because you're a man, you can take any career you want, but because I'm a woman, my choices are supposed to be limited. You make it an either-or situation. Either I'm a female and I do female things, or I'm not because I don't. That's your perspective, Larry, not mine. I don't choose to be limited. I want to be a woman and a cop. One doesn't have to exclude the other. That's what Dinah thinks, but the Gotham Police Academy doesn't see it that way. Her application is rejected, and the disappointment is such that Richard Drake suffers a fatal heart attack. In essence, dying of a broken heart. Dinah uses the money from her father's life insurance policy to open a flower shop, one of the few hobbies she acquired from her mother. But life as a florist is a poor consolation prize, and Dinah won't quit the crime-fighting dream she shared with her father just because the police department rejected her. Taking inspiration from the likes of Batman and Green Lantern, Dinah Drake adopts a flashy costume to battle criminals from slightly outside the law. Dad always called me a little bird, she says, so that's the kind of name I'll take. The Black Canary. From there, we get a rapid-fire recounting of Black Canary's first meeting with Johnny Thunder, as told in Flash Comics 86, which led to her eventually joining the Justice Society of America. She married Larry Lance, who had quit the force to work as a private detective. She briefly retired from crime-fighting, only to, only to return for a climactic adventure when the Justice Society of Earth 2 teamed up with the Justice League of Our Earth. During this epic team-up, Larry Lance died, sacrificing himself to save her from a cosmic being called Aquarius, as told in Justice League of America, issue 74. After the death of her husband, Dinah joined the Justice League, leaving the JSA and her home dimension. Earth 2 was full of too much death and disappointment. She had more opportunity to develop as a woman and as a character on Earth 1. And that's where she would partner with Oliver Queen, the Green Arrow. Which brings us to the present. Ali repeats the question from 12 pages ago. Does she regret her life's direction? Dinah tells him her only regrets are for the people she has loved and lost. And that concludes The Canary is a Bird of Prey, the heretofore untold origin of Black Canary. This story is written by Jerry Conway, who I have come to regard as the greatest underappreciated writer of the Bronze Age. And I could be way, way wrong about him being underappreciated, but I certainly don't hear his name talked about as much as it should be. 
Conway was the first writer to take over scripting Amazing Spider-Man after Stan Lee left the book. His most famous contribution to the Spider-Man mythos was writing the death of Gwen Stacy, but he also created the Punisher in the pages of Spider-Man. At DC, he wrote the Justice League of America during the halcyon days of the Satellite Era and created a bunch of characters, including Firestorm, who recently made his live-action debut on the Flash television series. Conway also created the Batman villain Killer Croc and the second Robin, Jason Todd, as well as the Justice League Detroit characters Gypsy, Steel, Vibe, and Vixen. I love Conway's approach to Dinah and the way duty and service to the cause of law and order factor into her life from such an impressionable age. She didn't become a crime fighter because it was fun, and she didn't do it because society said she couldn't. That was incidental. Had society or certain events been different, Dinah still would have put on a uniform and busted criminals, but it would have been the blues of a police officer, not leather and fishnets. We've seen this type of characterization in more recent characters, especially the current Batwoman, who wanted to serve her country as a Marine before being dishonorably discharged under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. In 1978, when Conway wrote the story, however, I don't know that this kind of fierce adherence to the concept of service was as prevalent in our heroes. Remember, Conway's most famous creation for DC, Firestorm, was a superhero who fell ass backwards into his powers. As for the art on this story, it's pretty beautiful. Mike Vosberg drew the G.I. Joe comic for a year or two during the early 80s, and those issues just happen to be my favorites of the series. What I find interesting in this story is how lean and slender he draws Dinah. Most artists depict her as shapely, with some decent curves around her legs and chest. Vosberg draws her much skinnier, almost stick-like in the pages when Dinah is younger, it definitely captures the little bird quality that Richard Drake saw in her. And of course, the story was inked by Terry Austin, who... Well, if anyone ever tells you there was a greater comic book inker than Terry Austin, you have my permission to throw your drink in that person's face and storm off. Austin made good pencils look great, and great pencils look legendary. Mike Vosberg wasn't a great artist, but these pages look amazing. wraps up the first episode of Flowers and Fishnets. I want to thank you for your time and hope you enjoyed the show. You can leave feedback for this episode on the website blackcanaryfan.blogspot.com or you can contact me with any questions or comments. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at blackcanaryfan or at ryandaily01. I use both with the username Count Druncula. Flowers and Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed on the show are mine alone. All music, audio clips, or quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And I make no money from this podcast, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.